Michael Chong, who teaches our course in Hong Kong, told of how the Chinese culture presents some special problems and how sometimes it is necessary to recognize that the benefits of applying a principle may be more advantageous than maintaining an old tradition. He had one middle-aged class member who had been estranged from his son for many years. The father had been an opium addict, but now was cured. In Chinese tradition, an older person cannot take the first step. The father felt that it was up to his son to take the initiative toward a reconciliation. In an early session, he told the class about the grandchildren he had never seen and how much he desired to be reunited with his son. His classmates, all Chinese, understood his conflict between his desire and long-established tradition. The father felt that young people should have respect for their elders and that he was right in not giving in to his desire but to wait for his son to come to him. Toward the end of the course, the father again addressed the class. I have pondered this problem, he said. Dale Carnegie says if you are wrong, admit it quickly and emphatically. It is too late for me to admit it quickly, but I can admit it emphatically. I wronged my son. He was right in not wanting to see me and to expel me from his life. I may lose face by asking a younger person's forgiveness, but I was at fault, and it is my responsibility to admit this. The class applauded and gave him their full support. At the next class, he told how he went to his son's house, asked for and received forgiveness, and was now embarked on a new relationship with his son, his daughter-in-law, and the grandchildren he had met at last. Albert Hubbard was one of the most original authors who ever stirred up a nation. His stinging sentences often aroused fierce resentment. But Hubbard, with his rare skill for handling people, frequently turned his enemies into friends. For example, when some irritated reader wrote in to say that he didn't agree with such and such an article and ended by calling Hubbard this and that, Albert Hubbard would answer like this. Come to think it over, I don't entirely agree with it myself. Not everything I wrote yesterday appeals to me today. I am glad to learn what you think on the subject. The next time you're in the neighborhood, you must visit us, and we'll get this subject threshed out for all time. So here is a hand clasp over the miles, and I am yours sincerely. And what could you say to a man who treated you like that? When we're right, let's try to win people gently and tactfully to our way of thinking. And when we're wrong, and that will be surprisingly often if we're honest with ourselves, let's admit our mistakes quickly and with enthusiasm. Not only will that technique produce astonishing results, but believe it or not, it is a lot more fun under the circumstances than trying to defend oneself. Remember the old proverb, by fighting you never get enough, but by yielding you get more than you expected. Principle three. If you're wrong, admit it quickly and emphatically. Chapter 4. A Drop of Honey If your temper is aroused and you tell them a thing or two, you'll have a fine time unloading your feelings. But what about the other person? Will he share your pleasure? Will your belligerent tones, your hostile attitude, make it easy for him to agree with you? If you come at me with your fists doubled, said Woodrow Wilson, I think I can promise you that mine will double as fast as yours. 
But if you come to me and say, let us sit down and take counsel together, and if we differ from each other, understand why it is that we differ, just what the points at issue are, we will presently find that we are not so far apart after all, that the points on which we differ are few, and the points on which we agree are many, and that if we only have the patience and the candor and the desire to get together, we will get together. Nobody appreciated the truth of Woodrow Wilson's statement more than John D. Rockefeller, Jr. Back in 1915, Rockefeller was the most fiercely despised man in Colorado. One of the bloodiest strikes in the history of American industry had been shocking the state for two terrible years. Irate, belligerent miners were demanding higher wages from the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company. Rockefeller controlled that company. Property had been destroyed, troops had been called out, blood had been shed, strikers had been shot, their bodies riddled with bullets. At a time like that, with the air seething with hatred, Rockefeller wanted to win the strikers to his way of thinking. And he did it. How? Here's the story. After weeks spent in making friends, Rockefeller addressed the representatives of the strikers. This speech, in its entirety, is a masterpiece. It produced astonishing results. It calmed the tempestuous waves of hate that threatened to engulf Rockefeller. It won him a host of admirers. It presented facts in such a friendly manner that the strikers went back to work without saying another word about the increase in wages for which they had fought so violently. The opening of that remarkable speech follows. Note how it fairly glows with friendliness. Rockefeller, remember, was talking to men who, a few days previously, had wanted to hang him by the neck to a sour apple tree. Yet he couldn't have been more gracious, more friendly, if he had addressed a group of medical missionaries. His speech was radiant with such phrases as, I am proud to be here, having visited in your homes, met many of your wives and children. We meet here not as strangers, but as friends spirit of mutual friendship, our common interests. It is only by your courtesy that I am here. This is a red-letter day in my life, Rockefeller began. It is the first time I have ever had the good fortune to meet the representatives of the employees of this great company, its officers and superintendents together, and I can assure you that I am proud to be here and that I shall remember this gathering as long as I live. Had this meeting been held two weeks ago, I should have stood here a stranger to most of you, recognizing a few faces. Having had the opportunity last week of visiting all the camps in the southern coal field and of talking individually with practically all of the representatives except those who were away, having visited in your homes, met many of your wives and children, we meet here not as strangers but as friends. And it is in that spirit of mutual friendship that I am glad to have this opportunity to discuss with you our common interests. Since this is a meeting of the officers of the company and the representatives of the employees, it is only by your courtesy that I am here, for I am not so fortunate as to be either one or the other. And yet I feel that I am intimately associated with you men, for in a sense I represent both the stockholders and the directors. Isn't that a superb example of the fine art of making friends out of enemies? 
Suppose Rockefeller had taken a different tack. Suppose he had argued with those miners and hurled devastating facts in their faces. Suppose he had told them by his tones and insinuations that they were wrong. Suppose that by all the rules of logic he had proved that they were wrong. What would have happened? More anger would have been stirred up, more hatred, more revolt. If a man's heart is rankling with discord and ill-feeling toward you, you can't win him to your way of thinking with all the logic in Christendom. Scolding parents and domineering bosses and husbands and nagging wives ought to realize that people don't want to change their minds. They can't be forced or driven to agree with you or me, but they may possibly be led to, if we are gentle and friendly, ever so gentle and ever so friendly. Lincoln said that, in effect, over a hundred years ago. Here are his words. It is an old and true maxim that a drop of honey catches more flies than a gallon of gall. So with men, if you would win a man to your cause, first convince him that you are his sincere friend. Therein is a drop of honey that catches his heart, which, say what you will, is the great high road to his reason. Business executives have learned that it pays to be friendly to strikers. For example, when 2,500 employees in the White Motor Company's plant struck for higher wages and a union shop, Robert F. Black, then president of the company, didn't lose his temper and condemn and threaten and talk of tyranny and communists. He actually praised the strikers. He published an advertisement in the Cleveland papers, complimenting them on the peaceful way in which they laid down their tools. Finding the strike pickets idle, he bought them a couple of dozen baseball bats and gloves and invited them to play ball on vacant lots. For those who preferred bowling, he rented a bowling alley. This friendliness on Mr. Black's part did what friendliness always does. It begot friendliness. So the strikers borrowed brooms, shovels, and rubbish carts and began picking up matches, papers, cigarette stubs, and cigar butts around the factory. Imagine it. Imagine strikers tidying up the factory grounds while battling for higher wages and recognition of the union. Such an event had never been heard of before in the long, tempestuous history of American labor wars. That strike ended with a compromise settlement within a week, ended without any ill-feeling or rancor. Daniel Webster, who looked like a god and talked like Jehovah, was one of the most successful advocates who ever pleaded a case. Yet he ushered in his most powerful arguments with such friendly remarks as, It will be for the jury to consider. This may perhaps be worth thinking of. Here are some facts that I trust you will not lose sight of. Or... You, with your knowledge of human nature, will easily see the significance of these facts. No bulldozing, no high-pressure methods, no attempt to force his opinions on others. Webster used the soft-spoken, quiet, friendly approach, and it helped to make him famous. You may never be called on to settle a strike or address a jury, but you may want to get your rent reduced. Will the friendly approach help you then? Let's see. O.L. Straub, an engineer, wanted to get his rent reduced, and he knew his landlord was hard-boiled. I wrote him, Mr. Straub said in a speech before the class, notifying him that I was vacating my apartment as soon as my lease expired. The truth was I didn't want to move. I wanted to stay if I could get my rent reduced. 
but the situation seemed hopeless. Other tenants had tried and failed. Everyone told me that the landlord was extremely difficult to deal with, but I said to myself, I'm studying a course in how to deal with people, so I'll try it on him and see how it works. He and his secretary came to see me as soon as he got my letter. I met him at the door with a friendly greeting. I fairly bubbled with goodwill and enthusiasm. I didn't begin talking about how high the rent was. I began talking about how much I liked his apartment house. Believe me, I was hearty in my approbation and lavish in my praise. I complimented him on the way he ran the building, and I told him I should like so much to stay for another year, but I couldn't afford it. He evidently never had such a reception from a tenant. He hardly knew what to make of it. Then he started to tell me his troubles. Complaining tenants, one had written him 14 letters, some of them positively insulting. Another threatened to break his lease unless the landlord kept the man on the floor above from snoring. What a relief it is, he said, to have a satisfied tenant like you. And then, without my even asking him to do it, he offered to reduce my rent a little. I wanted more, so I named the figure I could afford to pay, and he accepted without a word. As he was leaving, he turned to me and asked, What decorating can I do for you? If I tried to get the rent reduced by the methods the other tenants were using, I am positive I would have met with the same failure they encountered. It was the friendly, sympathetic, appreciative approach that won. Dean Woodcock of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, is the superintendent of a department of the local electric company. His staff was called upon to repair some equipment on top of a pole. This type of work had formerly been performed by a different department and had only recently been transferred to Woodcock's section. Although his people had been trained in the work, this was the first time they ever actually had been called upon to do it. Everybody in the organization was interested in seeing if and how they could handle it. Mr. Woodcock, several of his subordinate managers, and members of the other departments of the utility went to see the operation. Many cars and trucks were there, and a number of people were standing around watching the two lone men on top of the pole. Glancing around, Woodcock noticed a man up the street getting out of his car with a camera. He began taking pictures of the scene. Utility people are extremely conscious of public relations, and suddenly Woodcock realized what this setup looked like to the man with the camera. Overkill, dozens of people being called out to do a two-person job. He strolled up the street to the photographer. I see you're interested in our operation. Yes, and my mother will be more than interested. She owns stock in your company. This will be an eye-opener for her. She may even decide her investment was unwise. I've been telling her for years that there's a lot of waste motion in companies like yours. This proves it. The newspapers might like these pictures, too. Well, it does look like it, doesn't it? I'd think the same thing in your position, but this is a unique situation. And Dean Woodcock went on to explain how this was the first job of this type for his department and how everybody from executives down was interested. He assured the man that under normal conditions, two people could handle the job. The photographer put away his camera, shook Woodcock's hand, and thanked him for taking the time to explain the situation to him. Dean Woodcock's friendly approach saved his company much embarrassment and bad publicity.
Another member of one of our classes, Gerald H. Wynn of Littleton, New Hampshire, reported how, by using a friendly approach, he obtained a very satisfactory settlement on a damage claim. Early in the spring, he reported, before the ground had thawed from the winter freezing, there was an unusually heavy rainstorm, and the water, which normally would have run off to nearby ditches and storm drains along the road, took a new course onto a building lot where I just built a new home. Not being able to run off, the water pressure built up around the foundation of the house. The water forced itself under the concrete basement floor, causing it to explode, and the basement filled with water. This ruined the furnace and the hot water heater. The cost to repair this damage was in excess of $2,000. I had no insurance to cover this type of damage. However, I soon found out that the owner of the subdivision had neglected to put in a storm drain near the house, which could have prevented this problem. I made an appointment to see him. During the 25-mile trip to his office, I carefully reviewed the situation, and remembering the principles I learned in this course, I decided that showing my anger would not serve any worthwhile purpose. When I arrived, I kept very calm and started by talking about his recent vacation to the West Indies. And then when I felt the timing was right, I mentioned the little problem of water damage. He quickly agreed to do his share in helping to correct the problem. A few days later, he called and said he would pay for the damage and also put in a storm drain to prevent the same thing from happening in the future. Even though it was the fault of the owner of the subdivision, if I had not begun in a friendly way, there would have been a great deal of difficulty in getting him to agree to the total liability. Years ago, when I was a barefoot boy walking through the woods to a country school out in northwest Missouri, I read a fable about the sun and the wind. They quarreled about which was the stronger, and the wind said, I'll prove I am. See the old man down there with a the coat? I can get that coat off him quicker than you can. So the sun went behind a cloud, and the wind blew until it was almost a tornado. But the harder it blew, the tighter the old man clutched his coat to him. Finally, the wind calmed down and gave up, and then the sun came out from behind the clouds and smiled kindly on the old man. Presently, he mopped his brow and pulled off his coat. The sun then told the wind that gentleness and friendliness were always stronger than fury and force. The use of gentleness and friendliness is demonstrated day after day by people who have learned that a drop of honey catches more flies than a gallon of gall. F. Gale Connor of Lutherville, Maryland, proved this when he had to take his four-month-old car to the service department of the car dealer for the third time. He told our class, it was apparent that talking to, reasoning with, or shouting at the service manager was not going to lead to a satisfactory resolution of my problems. I walked over to the showroom and asked to see the agency owner, Mr. White. After a short wait, I was ushered into Mr. White's office. I introduced myself and explained to him that I had bought my car from his dealership because of the recommendation of friends who had had previous dealings with him. I was told that his prices were very competitive and that his service was outstanding. He smiled with satisfaction as he listened to me. Then I explained the problem that I was having with the service department. I thought you might want to be aware of any situation that might tarnish your fine reputation, I added. He thanked me for calling this to his attention and assured me that my problem would be taken care of. 
Not only did he personally get involved, but he also lent me his car to use while mine was being repaired. Aesop was a Greek slave who lived at the court of Croesus and spun immortal fables 600 years before Christ. Yet the truths he taught about human nature are just as true in Boston and Birmingham now as they were 26 centuries ago in Athens. The sun can make you take off your coat more quickly than the wind, and kindliness, the friendly approach, and appreciation can make people change their minds more readily than all the bluster and storming in the world. Remember what Lincoln said, a drop of honey catches more flies than a gallon of gall. Principle 4. Begin in a friendly way. Chapter 5. The Secret of Socrates. In talking with people, don't begin by discussing the things on which you differ. Begin by emphasizing and keep on emphasizing the things on which you agree. Keep emphasizing, if possible, that you are both striving for the same end and that your only difference is one of method and not of purpose. Get the other person saying yes, yes at the outset. Keep your opponent, if possible, from saying no. A no response, according to Professor Overstreet, is a most difficult handicap to overcome. When you have said no, all your pride of personality demands that you remain consistent with yourself. You may later feel that the no was ill-advised, Nevertheless, there is your precious pride to consider. Once having said a thing, you feel you must stick to it. Hence, it is of the very greatest importance that a person be started in the affirmative direction. The skillful speaker gets at the outset a number of yes responses. This sets the psychological process of the listeners moving in the affirmative direction. It's like the movement of a billiard ball. Propel in one direction, and it takes some force to deflect it, far more force to send it back in the opposite direction. The psychological patterns here are quite clear. When a person says no and really means it, he or she is doing far more than saying a word of two letters. The entire organism, glandular, nervous, muscular, gathers itself together into a condition of rejection. There is, usually in minutes, but sometimes in observable degree, a physical withdrawal or readiness for withdrawal. The whole neuromuscular system, in short, sets itself on guard against acceptance. When, to the contrary, a person says yes, none of the withdrawal activities takes place. The organism is in a forward-moving, accepting, open attitude. Hence, the more yeses we can at the very outset induce, the more likely we are to succeed in capturing the attention for our ultimate proposal. It is a very simple technique, this yes response, and yet how much it is neglected. It often seems as if people get a sense of their own importance by antagonizing others at the outset. Get a student to say no at the beginning, or a customer, child, husband, or wife, and it takes the wisdom and the patience of angels to transform that bristling negative into an affirmative. The use of this yes-yes technique enabled James Eberson, who was a teller at the Greenwich Savings Bank in New York City, to secure a prospective customer who might otherwise have been lost. This man came in to open an account, said Mr. Eberson, and I gave him our usual form to fill out. 
Some of the questions he answered willingly, but there were others he flatly refused to answer. Before I began the study of human relations, I would have told this prospective depositor that if he refused to give the bank this information, we should have to refuse to accept this account. I'm ashamed that I've been guilty of doing that very thing in the past. Naturally, an ultimatum like that made me feel good. I had shown who was boss, that the bank's rules and regulations couldn't be flouted. But that sort of attitude certainly didn't give a feeling of welcome and importance to the man who'd walked in to give us his patronage. I resolved this morning to use a little horse sense. I resolved not to talk about what the bank wanted, but about what the customer wanted. And above all else, I was determined to get him saying yes, yes from the very start. So I agreed with him. I told him the information he refused to give was not absolutely necessary. However, I said, suppose you have money in this bank at your death. Wouldn't you like to have the bank transfer it to your next of kin, who's entitled to it according to law? Yes, of course, he replied. Don't you think, I continued, that it would be a good idea to give us the name of your next of kin, so that in the event of your death, we could carry out your wishes without error or delay? Again, he said yes. The young man's attitude softened and changed, when he realized that we weren't asking for this information for our sake, but for his sake. Before leaving the bank, this young man not only gave me complete information about himself, but he opened, at my suggestion, a trust account, naming his mother as the beneficiary for his account, and he gladly answered all the questions concerning his mother also. I found that by getting him to say yes, yes from the outset, he forgot the issue at stake and was happy to do all the things that I suggested. Joseph Allison, a sales representative for Westinghouse Electric Company, had this story to tell. There was a man in my territory that our company was most eager to sell to. My predecessor had called on him for 10 years without selling anything. When I took over the territory, I called steadily for three years without getting an order. Finally, after 13 years of calls and sales talk, we sold him a few motors. If these proved to be all right, an order for several hundred more would follow. Uh, such was my expectation. Right? I knew they'd be all right. So when I called three weeks later, I was in high spirits. The chief engineer greeted me with this shocking announcement. Allison, I can't buy the remainder of the motors from you. Why, I asked in amazement, why? Because your motors are too hot. I can't put my hand on them. I knew it wouldn't do any good to argue. I'd tried that sort of thing too long. So I thought of getting the yes, yes response. Well, now look, Mr. Smith, I said. I agree with you 100%. If those motors are running too hot, you ought not to buy any more of them. You must have motors that won't run any hotter than standards set by the National Electrical Manufacturers Association. Isn't that so? He agreed it was. I'd gotten my first yes. The Electrical Manufacturers Association regulations say that a properly designed motor may have a temperature of 72 degrees Fahrenheit above room temperature. Is that correct? Yes, he agreed. That's quite correct. But your motors are much hotter. I didn't argue with him. I merely asked, how hot is the mill room? No, oh, he said, about 75 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, I replied, if the mill room is 75 degrees and you add 72 to that, that makes a total of 147 degrees Fahrenheit. 
Wouldn't you scald your hand if you held it under a spigot of hot water at a temperature of 147 degrees Fahrenheit? Again, he had to say yes. Well, I suggested, wouldn't it be a good idea to keep your hands off those motors? Oh, well, I guess you're right, he admitted. We continued to chat for a while, then he called his secretary and lined up approximately $35,000 worth of business for the ensuing month. It took me years and cost me countless thousands of dollars in lost business before I finally learned that it doesn't pay to argue, that it is much more profitable and much more interesting to look at things from the other person's viewpoint and to try to get that person saying yes, yes. Eddie Snow, who sponsors our courses in Oakland, California, tells how he became a good customer of a shop because the proprietor got him to say, yes, yes. Eddie had become interested in bow hunting and had spent considerable money in purchasing equipment and supplies from a local bow store. When his brother was visiting him, he wanted to rent a bow for him from this store. The sales clerk told him they didn't rent bows, so Eddie phoned another bow store. Eddie described what happened. A very pleasant gentleman answered the phone. His response to my question for a rental was completely different from the other place. He said he was sorry, but they no longer rented bows because they couldn't afford to do so. He asked me if I'd rented before. I replied, yes, several years ago. He reminded me that I probably paid 25 to $30 for the rental. I said, yes, again. Then he asked if I was the kind of person who liked to save money. Naturally, I answered, yes. He went on to explain that they had bow sets with all the necessary equipment on sale for $34.95. I could buy a complete set for only $4.95 more than I could rent one. He explained that is why they had discontinued renting them. Did I think that was reasonable? My yes response led to a purchase of the set, and when I picked it up, I purchased several more items at this shop and have since become a regular customer. Socrates, the gadfly of Athens, was one of the greatest philosophers the world has ever known. He did something that only a handful of men in all history have been able to do. He sharply changed the whole course of human thought. And now, 24 centuries after his death, he is honored as one of the wisest persuaders who ever influenced this wrangling world. His method? Did he tell people they were wrong? Oh, no, not Socrates. He was far too adroit for that. His whole technique, now called the Socratic method, was based upon getting a yes-yes response. He asked questions with which his opponent would have to agree. He kept on winning one admission after another until he had an armful of yeses. He kept on asking questions until finally, without realizing it, his opponents found themselves embracing a conclusion they would have bitterly denied a few minutes previously. The next time we're tempted to tell someone he or she is wrong, let's remember old Socrates and ask a gentle question, a question that will get the yes, yes response. The Chinese have a proverb pregnant with the age-old wisdom of the Orient. He who treads softly goes far. They have spent 5,000 years studying human nature, those cultured Chinese, and they have garnered a lot of perspicacity. He who treads softly goes far. 
principle five, get the other person saying yes, yes, immediately. Chapter six, the safety valve in handling complaints. Most people trying to win others to their way of thinking do too much talking themselves. Let the other people talk themselves out. They know more about their business and problems than you do, so ask them questions. Let them tell you a few things. If you disagree with them, you may be tempted to interrupt, but don't. It's dangerous. They won't pay attention to you while they still have a lot of ideas of their own crying for expression, so listen patiently and with an open mind. Be sincere about it. Encourage them to express their ideas fully. Does this policy pay in business? Let's see. Here is the story of a sales representative who was forced to try it. One of the largest automobile manufacturers in the United States was negotiating for a year's requirements of upholstery fabrics. Three important manufacturers had worked up fabrics in sample bodies. These had all been inspected by the executives of the motor company, and notice had been sent to each manufacturer saying that on a certain day, a representative from each supplier would be given an opportunity to make a final plea for the contract. GBR, a representative of one manufacturer, arrived in town with a severe attack of laryngitis. When it came my turn to meet the executives in conference, Mr. R said, as he related the story before one of my classes, I had lost my voice. I could barely whisper. I was ushered into a room and found myself face to face with the textile engineer, the purchasing agent, the director of sales, and the president of the company. I stood up and made a valiant effort to speak, but I couldn't do anything more than squeak. They were all seated around a table, so I wrote on a pad of paper, Gentlemen, I have lost my voice. I am speechless. I'll do the talking for you, the president said. He did. He exhibited my samples and praised their good points. A lively discussion arose about the merits of my goods, and the president, since he was talking for me, took the position I would have had during the discussion. My sole participation consisted of smiles, nods, and a few gestures. As a result of this unique conference, I was awarded the contract, which called for over half a million yards of upholstery fabrics at an aggregate value of $1,600,000, the biggest order I had ever received. I know I would have lost the contract if I hadn't lost my voice, because I had the wrong idea about the whole proposition. I discovered, quite by accident, how richly it sometimes pays to let the other person do the talking. Letting the other person do the talking helps in family situations as well as in business. Barbara Wilson's relationship with her daughter, Lori, was deteriorating rapidly. Lori, who had been a quiet, complacent child, had grown into an uncooperative, sometimes belligerent teenager. Mrs. Wilson lectured her, threatened her, and punished her, but all to no avail. One day, Mrs. Wilson told one of our classes, I just gave up. Lori had disobeyed me and had left the house to visit her girlfriend before she had completed her chores. When she returned, I was about to scream at her for the 10,000th time, but I just didn't have the strength to do it. I just looked at her and said sadly, Why, Lori, why? Lori noted my condition and in a calm voice asked, Do you really want to know? 
I nodded, and Laurie told me, first hesitantly, and then it all flowed out. I had never listened to her. I was always telling her to do this or that. When she wanted to tell me her thoughts, feelings, ideas, I interrupted with more orders. I began to realize that she needed me, not as a bossy mother, but as a confidant, an outlet for all her confusion about growing up, and all I'd been doing was talking when I should have been listening. I had never heard her. From that time on, I let her do all the talking she wanted. She tells me what is on her mind, and our relationship has improved immeasurably. She is, again, a cooperative person. A large advertisement appeared on the financial page of a New York newspaper, calling for a person with unusual ability and experience. Charles T. Kubelis answered the advertisement, sending his reply to a box number. A few days later, he was invited by letter to call for an interview. Before he called, he spent hours in Wall Street finding out everything possible about the person who had founded the business. During the interview, he remarked, I should be mighty proud to be associated with an organization with a record like yours. I understand you started 28 years ago with nothing but desk room and one stenographer. Is that true? Almost every successful person likes to reminisce about his early struggles, and this man was no exception. He talked for a long time about how he'd started with $450 in cash and an original idea. He told how he'd fought against discouragement and battled against ridicule, working Sundays and holidays 12 to 16 hours a day, how he finally won against all odds, until now the most important executives on Wall Street were coming to him for information and guidance. He was proud of such a record. He had a right to be, and he had a splendid time telling about it. Finally, he questioned Mr. Cabellus briefly about his experience, then called in one of his vice presidents and said, I think this is the person we're looking for. Mr. Cabellus had taken the trouble to find out about the accomplishments of his prospective employer. He showed an interest in the other person and his problems. He encouraged the other person to do most of the talking and made a favorable impression. Roy G. Bradley of Sacramento, California, had the opposite problem. He listened as a good prospect for a sales position talked himself into a job with Bradley's firm. Roy reported, Being a small brokerage firm, we had no fringe benefits, such as hospitalization, medical insurance, and pension. Every representative is an independent agent. We don't even provide leads for prospects, as we cannot advertise for them as our larger competitors do. Richard Pryor had the type of experience we wanted for this position, and he was interviewed first by my assistant, who told him about all the negatives related to this job. He seemed slightly discouraged when he came into my office. I mentioned the one benefit of being associated with my firm, that of being an independent contractor and therefore virtually being self-employed. As he talked about these advantages to me, he talked himself out of each negative thought he had when he came in for the interview. Several times it seemed as though he was half-talking to himself as he was thinking through each thought. At times, I was tempted to add to his thoughts. However, as the interview came to a close, I felt he had convinced himself, very much on his own, that he would like to work for my firm. Because I had been a good listener and let Dick do most of the talking, he was able to weigh both sides fairly in his mind. And he came to the positive conclusion, which was a challenge he created for himself. We hired him, and he has been an outstanding representative for our firm.
Even our friends would much rather talk to us about their achievements than listen to us boast about ours. La Rochefoucauld, the French philosopher, said, If you want enemies, excel your friends. But if you want friends, let your friends excel you. Why is that true? Because when our friends excel us, they feel important. But when we excel them, they, or at least some of them, will feel inferior and envious. By far the best-liked placement counselor in the Midtown Personnel Agency in New York City was Henrietta G. It hadn't always been that way. During the first few months of her association with the agency, Henrietta didn't have a single friend among her colleagues. Why? Because every day she would brag about the placement she had made, the new account she had opened, and anything else she had accomplished. I was good at my work and proud of it, Henrietta told one of our classes. But instead of my colleagues sharing my triumphs, they seemed to resent them. I wanted to be liked by these people. I really wanted them to be my friends. After listening to some of the suggestions made in this course, I started to talk about myself less and listen more to my associates. They also had things to boast about and were more excited about telling me about their accomplishments than about listening to my boasting. Now, when we have some time to chat, I ask them to share their joys with me, and I only mention my achievements when they ask. Principle 6. Let the other person do a great deal of the talking. Chapter 7. How to Get Cooperation Don't you have much more faith in ideas that you discover for yourself than in ideas that are handed to you on a silver platter? If so, isn't it bad judgment to try to ram your opinions down the throats of other people? Isn't it wiser to make suggestions and let the other person think out the conclusion? Adolf Seltz of Philadelphia, sales manager in an automobile showroom and a student in one of my courses, suddenly found himself confronted with the necessity of injecting enthusiasm into a discouraged and disorganized group of automobile salespeople. Calling a sales meeting, he urged his people to tell him exactly what they expected from him. As they talked, he wrote their ideas on the blackboard. Then he said, I'll give you all these qualities you expect from me. Now I want you to tell me what I have a right to expect from you. The replies came quick and fast. Loyalty, honesty, initiative, optimism, teamwork, eight hours a day of enthusiastic work. The meeting ended with a new courage, a new inspiration. One salesperson volunteered to work 14 hours a day, and Mr. Seltz reported to me that the increase of sales was phenomenal. The people had made sort of a moral bargain with me, Mr. Seltz said, and as long as I lived up to my part in it, they were determined to live up to theirs. Consulting them about their wishes and desires was just the shot in the arm they needed. No one likes to feel he or she is being sold something or told to do a thing. We much prefer to feel that we're buying of our own accord or acting on our own ideas. We like to be consulted about our wishes, our wants, our thoughts. Take the case of Eugene Wesson. He lost countless thousands of dollars in commissions before he learned this truth. Mr. Wesson sold sketches for a studio that created designs for stylists and textile manufacturers. Mr. Wesson had called on one of the leading stylists in New York once a week, every week, for three years. He never refused to see me, said Mr. Wesson, but he never bought, 
He always looked over my sketches very carefully and then said, No, Wes and I guess we don't get together today. After 150 failures, Wesson realized he must be in a mental rut, so he resolved to devote one evening a week to the study of influencing human behavior to help him develop new ideas and generate new enthusiasm. He decided on this new approach. With half a dozen unfinished artist sketches under his arm, he rushed over to the buyer's office. Uh, here are some uncompleted sketches. Won't you please tell me how we could finish them up in such a way that you could use them? The buyer looked at the sketches for a while without uttering a word. Uh, finally, he said, oh, leave these with me for a few days, Wesson, and then come back and see me. Wesson returned three days later, got his suggestions, took the sketches back to the studio, and had them finished according to the buyer's ideas. The result? All accepted. After that, this buyer ordered scores of other sketches from Wesson, all drawn according to the buyer's ideas. I realized why I had failed for years to sell him, said Mr. Wesson. I had urged him to buy what I thought he ought to have. Then I changed my approach completely. I urged him to give me his ideas. This made him feel that he was creating the designs, and he was. I didn't have to sell him. He bought. Letting the other person feel that the idea is his or hers not only works in business and politics, it works in family life as well. Paul M. Davis of Tulsa, Oklahoma, told his class how he applied this principle. My family and I enjoyed one of the most interesting sightseeing vacation trips we'd ever taken. I'd long dreamed of visiting such historic sites as the Civil War battlefield in Gettysburg, Independence Hall in Philadelphia, and our nation's capital. Valley Forge, Jamestown, and the restored colonial village of Williamsburg were high on the list of things I wanted to see. In March, my wife Nancy mentioned that she had ideas for our summer vacation, which included a tour of the western states, visiting points of interest in New Mexico, Arizona, California, and Nevada. She'd wanted to make this trip for several years, but we couldn't obviously make both trips. Our daughter Anne had just completed a course in U.S. history in junior high school and had become very interested in the events that had shaped our country's growth. I asked her how she'd like to visit the places she'd learned about on our next vacation. She said she'd love to. Two evenings later, as we sat around the dinner table, Nancy announced that if we all agreed, the summer's vacation would be to the eastern states, that it would be a great trip for Anne and thrilling for all of us. We all concurred. The same psychology was used by an x-ray manufacturer to sell his equipment to one of the largest hospitals in Brooklyn. This hospital was building an addition and preparing to equip it with the finest x-ray department in America. Dr. L, who was in charge of the x-ray department, was overwhelmed with sales representatives, each caroling the praises of his own company's equipment. One manufacturer, however, was more skillful. He knew far more about handling human nature than the others did. He wrote a letter something like this. Our factory has recently completed a new line of X-ray equipment. The first shipment of these machines has just arrived in our office. They are not perfect, we know that, and we want to improve them. So we should be deeply obligated to you if you could find time to look them over and give us your ideas about how they can be made more serviceable to your profession. Knowing how occupied you are, I shall be glad to send my car for you at any hour you specify. 
I was surprised to get that letter, Dr. L said, as he related the incident before the class. I was both surprised and complimented. I had never had an X-ray manufacturer seeking my advice before. It made me feel important. I was busy every night that week, but I canceled a dinner appointment in order to look over the equipment. The more I studied it, the more I discovered for myself how much I liked it. Nobody had tried to sell it to me. I felt that the idea of buying that equipment for the hospital was my own. I sold myself on its superior qualities and ordered it installed. Ralph Waldo Emerson, in his essay, Self-Reliance, stated, In every work of genius we recognize our own rejected thoughts. They come back to us with a certain alienated majesty. Colonel Edward M. House wielded an enormous influence in national and international affairs while Woodrow Wilson occupied the White House. Wilson leaned upon Colonel House for secret counsel and advice more than he did upon even members of his own cabinet. What method did the colonel use in influencing the president? Fortunately, we know, for House himself revealed it to Arthur D. Howden Smith, and Smith quoted House in an article in the Saturday Evening Post. After I got to know the president, House said, I learned the best way to convert him to an idea was to plant it in his mind casually, but so as to interest him in it, so as to get him thinking about it on his own account. The first time this worked, it was an accident. I had been visiting him at the White House and urged a policy on him when he appeared to disapprove. But several days later at the dinner table, I was amazed to hear him trot out my suggestion as his own. Did House interrupt him and say, that's not your idea, that's mine? Oh no, not House. He was too adroit for that. He didn't care about credit, he wanted results. So he let Wilson continue to feel that the idea was his. House did even more than that. He gave Wilson public credit for these ideas. Let's remember that everyone we come in contact with is just as human as Woodrow Wilson. So let's use Colonel House's technique. A man in the beautiful Canadian province of New Brunswick used this technique on me and won my patronage. I was planning at the time to do some fishing and canoeing in New Brunswick. So I wrote the Tourist Bureau for information. Evidently, my name and address were put on a mailing list, for I was immediately overwhelmed with scores of letters and booklets and printed testimonials from camps and guides. I was bewildered. I didn't know which to choose. Then, one camp owner did a clever thing. He sent me the names and telephone numbers of several New York people who had stayed at his camp, and he invited me to telephone them and discover for myself what he had to offer. I found, to my surprise, that I knew one of the men on his list. I telephoned him, found out what his experience had been, and then wired the camp the date of my arrival. The others had been trying to sell me on their service, but one let me sell myself. That organization won. Twenty-five centuries ago, Lao Tse, a Chinese sage, said some things that readers of this book might use today. The reason why rivers and seas receive the homage of a hundred mountain streams is that they keep below them. Thus they are able to reign over all the mountain streams. So the sage, wishing to be above men, putteth himself below them. Wishing to be before them, he putteth himself behind them. 
Thus, though his place be above men, they do not feel his weight. Though his place be before them, they do not count it an injury. Principle 7. Let the other person feel that the idea is his or hers. Chapter 8. A Formula That Will Work Wonders For You Remember that other people may be totally wrong, but they don't think so. Don't condemn them. Any fool can do that. Try to understand them. Only wise, tolerant, exceptional people even try to do that. There's a reason why the other man thinks and acts as he does. Ferret out that reason, and you have the key to his actions, perhaps to his personality. Try honestly to put yourself in his place. If you say to yourself, how would I feel, how would I react if I were in his shoes, you will save yourself time and irritation, for by becoming interested in the cause, we are less likely to dislike the effect. And in addition, you will sharply increase your skill in human relationships. Stop a minute, says Kenneth M. Good in his book, How to Turn People into Gold. Stop a minute to contrast your keen interest in your own affairs with your mild concern about anything else. Realize then that everybody else in the world feels exactly the same way. Then, along with Lincoln and Roosevelt, you will have grasped the only solid foundation for interpersonal relationships. Namely, that success in dealing with people depends on a sympathetic grasp of the other person's viewpoint. Sam Douglas of Hempstead, New York, used to tell his wife that she spent too much time working on their lawn, pulling weeds, fertilizing, cutting the grass twice a week when the lawn didn't look any better than it had when they moved into their home four years earlier. Naturally, she was distressed by his remarks, and each time he made such remarks, the balance of the evening was ruined. After taking our course, Mr. Douglas realized how foolish he'd been all those years, it never occurred to him that she enjoyed doing that work, and she might really appreciate a compliment on her diligence. One evening after dinner, his wife said she wanted to pull some weeds and invited him to keep her company. He first declined, but then thought better of it and went out after her and began to help her pull weeds. She was visibly pleased, and together they spent an hour in hard work and pleasant conversation. After that, he often helped her with the gardening and complimented her on how fine the lawn looked. What a fantastic job she was doing with a yard where the soil was like concrete. Result? A happier life for both, because he had learned to look at things from her point of view, even if the subject was only weeds. In his book, Getting Through to People, Dr. Gerald S. Nirenberg commented, Cooperativeness in conversation is achieved when you show that you consider the other person's ideas and feelings as important as your own. Starting your conversation by giving the other person the purpose or direction of your conversation, governing what you say by what you would want to hear if you were the listener, and accepting his or her viewpoint will encourage the listener to have an open mind to your ideas.